Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Actung, actung, welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk uh, with me, James Holland, on Gold Beach on the 6th of June 2022. So D-Day 78 doesn't quite have the same ring as a big rounded number anniversary but you can hear from the crunch underneath me there's pebbles big pebbles at the end of the it's sort of effectively the sea wall which sort of leans up to leads up rather leads up to dunes the tide is out it's a vast vast open beach uh lots of sort of um muscle banks out on the low tide a tractor down there um, those uh, chariots that they like so much in, in Normandy are way to my left towards the cliffs of Aramanche no chiff chaffs this morning but um, a cuckoo in the distance which is lovely, lovely to hear and um, it's funny because this must be this is, this is basically where the vast bulk of jig sector of gold beach so this is 231 malta brigade and the sherwood rangers along with the funnies the flails 13 flails of the westminster dragoons and 82nd assault squadron royal engineers in their avries this is pretty much where they all came ashore um on jig red sector most of them should have come ashore on jig green which is much closer to La Hamel, which is where, for anyone who's ever been here, is where that bunker is. There's a kind of sort of embouchure pointing eastwards down the beach. Um, but this part of Gold Beach is actually pretty hard to get to. You've got to go along a, a not very um, impressive footpath. It's kind of, there's no pointers to it or anything like that. It's, it's, all, it's all quite remote, really. Um, and this must be the only part of the D-Day beaches that you can't readily access Um, and yet it's such an important part which is it's sort of odd and mildly disappointing at the same time but the reason they all landed here was because of course of the terrible weather and you have to think about that huge westerly kind of rushing in towards them basically at 90 degrees from the direction which they're trying to travel so you've got these very flat bottom craft and very very flat sides and of course the wind hurtling from the west straight into them and those sides are effectively acting like a sail the weather's bad unlike this morning which is gorgeous and lovely blue skies the weather was awful it's no wonder that they drifted off course the other problem was that the Sherwood Rangers were supposed to be released first at 7,000 yards out it's a hell of a way I mean what's that three miles or something I mean that's a long way out 
Um, and the reason they didn't want them going in too close is because the LCTs are 59 metres long. You know, that's a, that's a big old craft. And what they don't want them to do is, is spoiling the run-in for the LCAs, the landing craft assault, the infantry, much smaller infantry craft coming in and of course you've got all these beach obstacles so the idea is the engineers blow these holes through through the beach obstacles and what you don't want is a massive great nearly 60 meter long lct being blown sideways and blocking the path of the infantry but of course they did have a plan b it doesn't exist for gold beach but they had it at sword beach and our good friend stephen fisher pointed me on to this so that the at sword beach the plan was that you would circle to port. And this is because the tanks were in LCT Mark 3s, which slightly pushed portwards on the propeller. So you had to sort of steer at kind of 20 degrees in the opposite direction to kind of correct it. And the LCTs would then circle out of the way, because, of course, in the first... You know, as they were all lined up, the LCTs with the tanks on were first, because they were going to land first. So they would circle to port... Uh, and this is why in the Westminster Dragoons and the 82nd Assault um, Squadron's War Dive, for example, it mentions seeing LCTs heading back across the channel in the direction of England. Of course, they weren't. They were just circling. And at the point they saw them, they were, cir- you know, to circle round. You've obviously got to do 360 degrees. So that's why they looked to be pointing backwards. But actually, all they were doing was circling and getting out of the way of the LCAs coming in. So they're circling behind them to get behind the LCAs who then go go in first. And what was supposed to happen was that the first Hampshires would be on the right and they would land on Jig Green and Assault Hamel and the casement with a anti-tank gun in it pointing down the beach and a sanatorium behind it bristling with machine guns and mortars and what have you. And and then get up onto the high ground where there was a further four strong points with guns and a radar station and, and so on and Dorsets would land on their left at the at the eastern end of Jig Green and assault WN 36 a strong point 36 at Le Roquette which is where I parked my car this morning absolutely nothing left incidentally of the German bunker system there absolutely nothing at all and just a housing estate now sort of holiday homes and beach stuff but what happened was the wind blew them across, so actually the Hampshires landed east of WM36. So even further east than the Hampshires were supposed to be. And then, having landed, they then dog-legged back, so like sort of 90 degrees backwards, and attacked WN36 rather than Le Hamel. And C Squadron of the Sherwood Rangers followed on behind, landing, you know, not far after, you know, before 8 o'clock, certainly. Uh, the salt infantry came down about 7.30, something like that, 7.35. And joined them there. A Squadron, which is where I've just been, which is where Stanley Christofferson landed, and where's a very, very famous photograph of Aberdeen, taken by Sergeant Midgley. Um, there's a whole sequence of photographs. And Aberdeen from A Squadron is landing at about... 10 o'clock, although A Squadron started landing at about 9 o'clock, at very, very high tide, and that's where I've just been. It's about 840 metres, 40 yards, something like that, 850 yards from WM36. And so the Hampshire's then dog-legged back and attacked, attacked WM36. 
The only people that landed on Jig Green was B Squadron of the Sherwood Rangers, who were then rather isolated, and one team of the of the breaching teams, combination of Westminster Dragoons and the 82nd Assault Squadron. And the amazing thing is, you've got all these aerial photographs now that have come to light, or come to light to me at any rate, and you can see all these different tanks. You can see one of the exits they're trying to clear off the beach to the lateral road that runs parallel. And you can see these knocked out flail tanks and Avery's lying on the beach. And you can also see very clearly one particular B squadron tank commanded by Lieutenant Monty Hawley. And Bert Jenkins was one of that crew and I I was lucky to talk to him at, at some length. And he was the only one who survived. Basically what happened was they they managed to um, they were dropped into the sea about 700 yards out which as he said was still a hell of a long way in that weather and they managed to get there and what happens is your, your tracks are going round so that when you hit the beach you don't stuck you don't get stuck you keep going but on the duplex drive you're going at a very very slow pace so you have to stop to switch it back into normal drive and lower the canvas screens obviously you can't see diddly squat about it and you can't fire your gun so they did manage to land only about 230 yards from the embouchure of the bunker at Le Hamel. And having landed, they then managed to switch into normal drive and move up the beach. And they just got off the beach, lowered the screen when suddenly... Well, no, they hadn't lowered the screen. When suddenly they were hit and the screen was on fire. And Bert said he remembered thinking, gosh, we're all going to get fried here. But of course, there was water on the ground, so the water doused, the, the, the flames burnt away the canvas, and the water beneath them, the sort of very shallow water, then put out the flames. But then they were hit again, and they all managed to bail out. But, and uh, Bert Jenkins stayed at the back of the tank. And you can see in the photographs, the aerial photograph, you can see the tank pointing towards the bunker at Le Hamel. And you can see why Bert Jenkins would have been at the back, because obviously that's away from the firing. But the other four all died, including Hawley and Warboys was another one. Both killed, lay there, and he said he didn't see a soul. Well, he wouldn't have seen many, because the next load of tanks were about sort of, I don't know, 150 yards further on. Of course, there was smoke and mayhem. And the main fighting wasn't there. It was further along at... WM36 on Jig Red, not on Jig Green at all, which was why he felt rather abandoned. But the amazing thing is we've been able to sort of piece all this together by looking at these photographs, because the photographs don't lie, whereas war diaries, you know, they're written by people, you know, adjutants and intelligence officers, in the case of D-Day, probably several days later, because there's so much going on. Most of the people who were writing the diaries were at headquarters um, battalion headquarters so wouldn't have been in the first wave so wouldn't have witnessed this and of course they also there's an imperative to make themselves look good and the battalion look good so they tend to sort of round things up so you know Hampshire for example says we landed exactly where we should have done on time well they absolutely didn't might have landed pretty much on time but they certainly didn't land where they were supposed to so you know one has to has to sort of sift through all this and combine what you get in war diaries 
and what you get from naval reports, which Steve Fisher put me onto, and which are fascinating. And of course, these guys are much better at logging times because they're on a sort of stationary position on the bridge of a ship or, or whatever. And it's all about timing. Whereas if you're an infantryman, just about to jump out of a landing craft, you know, with all the spray and smoke and mayhem of battle, the absolute last thing you're going to be doing is checking your watch. So you have to piece all this together. And then the final piece of the jigsaw really is, is these aerial photographs. And of course, they don't lie. And as long as you know when these photographs were taken, and we do, there was a series of different sorties. First one taken by an F5, so sort of a, a photo reconnaissance P38 Lightning, uh, took place between 10.30 and 11am. And the next one, between 11.30 and 12pm, and then there's a further one between sort of 1 and 2. And so as long as you know which one's which, you're in business, and you can see very clearly what's, what's going on. And what's really interesting is that by 11.30 to 12, the road that I'm just about to head on, I've got back, I've now managed to get back to what was WN36. It's a little curving road, curves back to the lateral road. And on those photographs, those aerial photographs, you can see it's absolutely swarming with vehicles. But what's really interesting is there's also some Sherwood Rangers DD tanks going through the village of Asnell between 10.30 and 11. And that is really significant. Well, I've now moved into the centre of Asnell and it's fascinating because another of these photographs that has emerged taken between... 10.30am and 11am clearly shows a troop of four DD tanks moving through the village, pretty much where I am now. And you can see one of them's on point, um, no infantry around, so it's, it's you know, 100 yards ahead of the other three who are all quite close together, snaking cautiously around this village. And I can see why they would be, because, you know, there's 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 the roads are quite narrow. There's walls and buildings either side. I've, I've just got through to the heart of the village and now there's a sort of, there's a field in the centre of it. And the thing is, how on earth did they get there? I mean, they, it, it could be B Squadron at a moment where the gun at Le Hamel had stopped firing, but that strikes me as very unlikely. And what you can also see from the, from the aerial photographs is away to my left here. So that's the east of the village on the open ground. There's a knocked out DD Sherman tank. And what you can see as it's moved forward, you can see its tank tracks and then hurriedly reversed. It's a series of shells have, have landed, presumably from our own, or not necessarily, maybe from the Germans, I'm not sure. But, but any, at any rate, it has stopped. And that suggests to me that the other four have come from that same direction. And actually, you can see tank tracks again a little bit further south from where the knocked out Sherman is. Um, and that suggests that they've come from Sea Squadron, landing on Jig Green and have somehow kind of pushed inland a bit and then cut across. Um, that seems to me the most likely um, answer as to why those tanks are there. But it could be Peter Soleri who landed successfully with with five DDs. One was knocked out getting off the, off the beach. Um, it could be Colin Thompson, another troop commander in B Squadron, who was certainly uh, not knocked out and managed to survive. But my guess is it's Sea Squadron. But it's just so fascinating piecing this stuff together and trying to work out the timings and 
what's going on and how they got there in the first place. Really, really interesting. And, and one just gets such a clearer picture of what was going on in the mayhem of D-Day by piecing all these different threads together and making them into one almost complete story. Well, we're, I'm now sitting in the gardens of a chateau, feeling a bit more like a First World War general than a one in Normandy. But I'm sat next to um, my great pals, David Christofferson and Sarah Jane Grace, who are the offspring of one of my great heroes, Stanley Christofferson. And um, since I've been on the trail of Stanley this morning on Gold Beach and where he came ashore, um, and since I'm over in Normandy with David and Sarah Jane, it seemed only right to kind of pick their brains. Because actually, David, you and I, when we did our epic trip following the Sherwood Rangers in, in October 2020, in that little window in, in the pandemic, and we went all around Guy and Kirk and didn't we, and up, up the Reichswald and crossed the Rhine and all the way up to Karlshofen at the very end, and we had that fantastic trip. And we actually, we sat down and recorded a couple of times, but I didn't quite have all the kit with me, and um, recording wasn't... <laughs> <laughs> and there was that night, wasn't there, in the in the bar somewhere in Germany? It wasn't our, our finest hour. But, no. Uh, but I, funny enough, James, I was just reflecting this morning over breakfast that um, you know, that actually it goes back to the 60th anniversary, the, yeah. the genesis of all of this started, i.e. our great friendship. And, you know, by very coincidence, you know, we were staying, weren't we, so close to the infamous point 103, in the Chateau Audreuil. That's right. And I had that section of diary. And you, I'll never forget, you turned around and said to me, you know, what have you got there? And I said, oh, I've got a bit of my father's diary. Which and you had read. his 1 to 250,000 map, didn't you? Do you That's right. That? Yes, yes. The original one he used with little sort of little bit, bits he, circled in pencil. And you said, have you got any more of that? And I said, about 300,000 words. <laughs> and you then, you know, like a sort of, you were like a sort of... Uh, a hound, you grabbed me, and we said, "This is just round the corner," and yeah. that was the start of, you know, of this great adventure that we've been on, sort of, in some ways, culminating in today. Yeah, amazing. And I remember we went up to point one hundred three, which was, you know, I kept saying, "God, this, this point one hundred three seems to be quite an important part for the Sherwood Rangers. What's going on here?" And then we kind of looked at the map and looked at it, and I said, "God, you know what? It's just right next door to Adroy. Let's go and have a look." And we wandered up, didn't we? And there was that sort of sunken lane, and and it's funny because you know, the last couple of days I've been pouring over there as well, and and you know, every time you go up to these places, you learn something new, and. What I had this time with me that I didn't have before was this extraordinary 1944 photograph that was taken on the 24th of June. And you can see all these track marks of crossing the fields. And I can never quite understand why they crossed exactly where they did. But once you're up there, you realise that that's completely dead ground. So, of course, it makes perfect sense for the approach around Adroy, which is when they first got there, was still fighting. You know, they're fighting against the, you know, the Durhams are fighting against the 12th SS and, you know, Canadians being executed in the woods behind the chateau and all that kind of stuff. So, obviously, they want to kind of steer clear. But amazing to be up there again. And... Um, yeah, as you say, it's kind of sort of full, full circle in a way. And having finally found the spot on the beach where Stanley came ashore was was wonderful. But but I remember David, you were talking so sort of articulately about about Stanley and, and Sarah Jane. You ha- you you always do as well. And um, you know, it's one of my eternal regrets that I never had the opportunity to to meet him because he always seemed so so much fun. I think he was. He was innately so full of joy, and wherever he was and whoever he met. He found joy, he exuded happiness. He was the sort of person you just wanted to be around. 
and um, of course he was incredibly modest as well. But when you were when you were growing up, when you were a child, I mean, did you know what he'd done in the war? I mean, did he ever talk about it? He didn't. Um, I mean, he was great fun as a father, so there was always lots of humour and lots of laughter. No, I mean, David was talking to me last night about this. It was just as we were growing up, occasionally someone came up and said, do you do know how amazing your father was or is and what an incredible war he had? But obviously, because he didn't really talk about it very much, it was only as we got older, and sadly, obviously, he's not here now to discuss it, that we really realised what an incredible war he had and what a brave man he was. Did you ever pick his brain? Because you went on a trip or two with him, didn't you? We did. You went, you went, to, went to Beek when they did the unveiling of the tank. We did go to Beek. And, um, and this I, is in Nijmegen. This is near Nijmegen. This is right on the German border. And when we were much younger, didn't we, we did actually come over here, but probably too young. And, you know, the only thing I remember of that trip was the infamous story about the horse. Uh, <laughs> yeah. he, this is on D-Day on, itself on D-Day itself and his wonderful quote is saying I think I must be the only man who arrived on D-Day and rode on a horse cantering across the fields jumping hedges with my clasping my map case wearing my tin hat and tango because of course you, you, as he said you just don't realise how much traffic there is you know on these sorts of things yes because he was trying to he was trying to hook up with the 4th Essex Battalion and he'd been told that they were to liaise with them and, and you know, advance to Bayer, but he couldn't find them. And every time he asked someone, he'd say, oh, well, the colonel's up, the, half, the lieutenant colonel's sort of further on. And then he saw this horse, didn't he, just sort of he, he, he said, standing, I think, I think he said waiting to be ridden with a saddle on. were with him. But, of course, you see, given that he'd, you know, he loved his hunting and he'd gone to war with a horse, for yep. him this was just natural territory. But to answer your question, the answer is no. We, he didn't really speak about it. We did do the trip together, and there was just this constant... It was it was almost, you know, with that generation, and we both know this, having met a number of the veterans together, you know, they really didn't want to talk about it, but occasionally you would get a tap on the shoulder saying, you know, you do really realise how remarkable your father was, and, you know, for, certainly for myself, and I don't know about you, Sarah Jane, he was just... The slightly older man in our lives who was always full of fun and, um, you know, and uh, great to be with. But, I mean, I think, as I said to you once before, it was, you know, I realised we were living with Superman and never knew it. (laughs) (laughs) And this has been the remarkable journey we've been on, which is like an onion, unpeeling that journey as we've discovered more and more. And every time we make these trips, we do discover more, don't we? Yeah. Yeah, no, we do. And, and, And it's been fascinating. Well, I mean, it's been an absolute privilege for me to be able to kind of sort of get inside his wartime head to a certain extent I mean I I mean we were talking yesterday weren't we about about him taking over the command of the Sherwood Rangers on formerly on the 15th of June and I, I think you know he used his his natural attributes that I think came to him very easily the sort of ready charm and and, and an inquisitiveness and interest in other people and all sorts so I think that made him very well suited to be a, a commanding officer but he obviously had that natural authority too um you know, I remember when I was talking, even when I was talking to Stan Perry a, a year or two ago, and he said, you know, if Stanley said jump, you would jump. Um, but he did it in a very kind of easy way. And James, the other thing I was sort of thinking about yesterday as well, as we were walking around on the beaches, was of course he was a natural diary keeper. Um, and he, interestingly, he kept a diary all the way through his time at Winchester. I mean, they were small books, but 
what I was remembering about them was that he always, again, used to find joy. So you'd read uh, a page along the lines of had a terrible day, didn't enjoy Latin, it was raining. But there was excellent plum pudding and custard. So he, even then there was a little bit of something as... Um, you know, like finding the snowdrop in the snow. Oh, yes, he, outside, um, he outside always, Cleave. And yeah. I think thing about keeping a diary is, of course, it's a, it's a great way of just organising your thoughts, isn't it? And, I suppose so. And, and, of course, keeping the diaries all the way through the war was just a, sim- was a furthering of that, wasn't it, really? Just yeah, and just an incredible amount of letter writing as well. I mean, that's the other mm. thing that's just extraordinary, isn't it? And I, and I suppose it, it, it's, it's a... I mean, the reason so many people do keep diaries is a because they know they're in they're living through great events and world changing events. I, I I think, even if that's a subconscious thing, but it's also because it's cathartic. You, yeah, you need a way of of talking about this. You can't really talk to your fellows and and about it because you're all in the same boat and you don't want to kind of seem maudlin. And you need to just sort of get stuff off your chest. And I I suppose it's just the best way of doing it, isn't it? Yes, the letter writing is an interesting one because I'm sure it was very cathartic and he was an avid letter writer and you, you know, I've seen pictures of him holding his letters and there are many references of receiving letters but there is of course a slightly darker side to the letter writing because as we both know he had to write a lot of letters sadly when people you know, were lost in action and I know from, you know from the conversations that we've had with people like John Sepkins and even earlier with Padre Skinner they have very difficulty around that and what tremendous feeling of guilt he felt having to write to people, his um, you know, relatives, you know, when very sadly someone had been lost in battle. And towards the end of the war, I think he found that incredibly difficult. Um, yeah, it's uh, interesting, I, I isn't it? But, almost is the word I would use. Yeah, I, I, and I remember John Semkin just saying, looking at you and just saying, I don't know how your father did it. I just don't know how he kept going. And, and John Semkin made the very interesting point that, that Stephen Mitchell had been his kind of soulmate within the regiment and this, this very, very great friendship that was, um, was bound by kind of sort of mutual trust, Mickey-taking um, and deep experience, of course, because they'd been together since heading overseas in early 1940 to Palestine and all the way through. And then when Stephen Mitchell was moved on to a Farmer Brigade headquarters... He then had Lord Lee, didn't he, the, um, the Baron. Mm-hmm. And you, you get the impression that while your father was, was fond of him, it, it, he was, it wasn't a deep friendship by any stretch of the imagination. And, and I think that must have been incredibly hard in those last months of the war when it was just grinding on, wasn't it? That very difficult winter when it was so cold and snow all around and bitter. And, you know, you're still losing men right up to the very end. And I think that really would have been difficult because I think humour for him was a great outlet. Yeah. And uh, and I think if you haven't got somebody such as Stephen Mitchell, who I mean, we know how incredibly fond he was of him and how well they got on, and you know they'd been together really from the very early days, hadn't they, from throughout yeah. the war. And I think you know certainly that was one of the things that really came through in both your book, recent book, and our trip there was this terrible feeling of the pointlessness of the fact that everybody knew the war was over, yet you just carried on and you just ground it out and nobody was sensible enough to say enough is enough. And that must have been, I mean, so debilitating. Yeah. Um, very difficult to deal with. Um, 
But humour punctuates, I think, wouldn't you say so, Jane? I mean, every memory. Absolutely. Yes, there was just basically, there was always joy, um, I think, in his heart. I mean, every day, I think, he found joy in life and within himself. I mean, he also had great faith. Did he? Okay, I hadn't really appreciated that. He definitely did have great faith, and it's sort of interesting when he writes along the lines of went to the Padre service, it was marvellous. You know. Yes. Then went and had a big breakfast or <laughs> you know again. But but, but more plum duff. Yes, more yeah. plum duff. So I think the combination of humour and great faith actually. And mo- and of course he was so modest, wasn't he? So that's why I think one of the reasons the men loved him so much. He just The other element I think that probably using a sort of a modern term you know but I think he had a lot of emotional intelligence around people yeah and uh, and I think he was very empathetic mm. and you certainly see that towards the latter stage of the war where he thought very carefully about I remember you know taking Stuart Hills out of the front line when he lost his great mate because he knew he, you know, he wasn't in a good shape and you know and I yep. think he probably did a lot of what are good deeds towards people that you know little things that make a difference and i think that would have won him a lot of respect yeah and um and certainly talking to the you know the veterans that we were all lucky enough to meet after the war that came through time and time again there was a sort of because he was a little bit older than so many of them there was this reassuring presence well he was 32 Um, wasn't he in 1944 and John Semkin would be, what, 23? 23. So, and Stuart Hill's 21, so he's a good yeah. sort of decade ahead of them. And I think they, they found that very reassuring, empathetic presence with good humour. Um, but also an, a, an intelligence that I think obviously paid huge dividends, you know. I mean, he was a bit of a lucky child by the end of it, because by all accounts, I'm not sure he should have been with us, because of considering how many lucky near scrapes he had. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back shortly. See you in a moment. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Caddy Kay, US Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics US, brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people (laughs) will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. 
In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. But he, I mean, after the war, I mean, it, I mean, he had you both quite late, really, didn't he? He did. He had a spell of, of being a happy bachelor, I think. Right. For quite, a, quite a few years. Lusting after Myrtle Kellett. <laughs> yeah, and others. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, you know, it's so lovely. He did, you know, he met our mother and, um, you know, they were very happy, actually, and had us. Um, and, you know, we had a lot of fun, didn't we, growing mm. up? And of course, because you went to South Africa after the war with Stuart Hills. Yeah, of course. Um, he didn't say that that long, did he? No, but he had he'd obviously before the war had been there. Um, yeah. And spent a lot of time there. And uh, he was always very happy in South Africa. And then, of course, in later life, um, you know, Mummy and Daddy had a, a house in Cape Town. And they would go every year, what was it, from about so Christmas, just after Christmas, wasn't it? Yes. For three months. And actually, they were both incredibly happy there. They, it was extraordinary. They used to shed about sort of ten years of you know sort of age, and um, you know they had a very. I think he was he was spiritually very centred in South Africa. But actually, going back to Sergeant, I hadn't really thought about your comment about faith. He had great faith, and um, certainly you know after the war and throughout our lives, church was important to him. Yeah, and he was a regular at so the local church, and he was because you know, the school was in Sussex, him. wasn't it? Kent. Kent was it Kent, and um, and it uh, and I think that was very helpful for him as he sort of I think reflected over the war years, you know, in later life. I think his faith, you know, kept him, you know, on the straight and narrow after all the things that he had experienced actually. And I love the fact that Padre Skinner married them both in Stockwell, yeah. which was where his parish wasn't it at it the time. Was his parish, yes. And we found the city of it. Yeah. No, we've actually with Sarah Jones, I think as well. Oh, that's amazing! um, I'd love to see that with Padre Skinner, and uh, you know, in um, who you know was truly one of his great confidants. Well, that kind of sort of access of 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 your father Stephen Mitchell while he was around Mm. Padre Skinner and and Dr. Hilda Young. You know, they obviously just really kept everyone... They kept an eye on everyone, didn't they? And as you say, that kind of sort of pastoral care that they brought to the, the regiment, I think, w- was one of the reasons it was so exceptional. But also, James, there was a transformation, wasn't there? If you think of the regiment at the beginning of the war, mm. and you really sensed on D-Day, it was a sort of almost like a snake shedding a skin. It was it was the, you know, particularly with the tragedy of the HQ being knocked out. It was yeah. sort of almost a herald of a new era of, you know, steely... Not that it wasn't professionals, but of course there was, but it was just different, yep. wasn't it? It was um, probably a lot more egalitarian because needs must and all of that with the terrible casualty rates. Yeah, but also I think it's a recognition that, you know, these, these people are, are, are still temporary soldiers mm. and, you know, this isn't, this isn't an earlier age. This is, this is an age where you have to give a little bit more latitude mm. and um, a little bit more uh, flexibility to people and people who break the rules you know you have to take it on a case-by-case basis and take into account all sorts of other factors when you talk about discipline mm. i mean i remember about sort of Arthur reddish coming back and yes. having gone a wall and 
Mickey Gold. Yeah, Mickey Gold, <laughs> and and you know, your sort of your father sort of um, obviously was quite amused by all these things and didn't come down heavy on them. No, but it's also interesting, James, how many officers came back to the regiment. I wasn't aware of that until we started going through this journey together. Of, the fluidity of officers coming into the regiment and then leaving and then coming back. Well, what, people like Mickey Gold going yeah. off for a bit, yeah. yeah who, who infamously said he would desert unless he could come back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's funny that, isn't it? I, I suppose what they were trying to do after after Tunisia was sort of spread a little bit of um, experience through some of the new ones. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Someone like the 24th Lancers, which joined the Sherwood Rangers in Normandy, part of 8th Army Brigade, you know, they were new to war and, and, and that was their undoing and that's why they got slaughtered because they didn't have that weight of experience. And although Normandy was a very, very different landscape to Tunisia or North Africa, there was enough professionalism now within the Sherwood Rangers and experience that they knew how to... That there were certain sort of rules and, and, and ways of going about things that they could apply from North Africa to Normandy, despite the differing terrain, that really, really helped them. Well, the 24th Lancers didn't have that, so there's, there's much more sort of crashing through hedgerows blindly with the 24th Lancers than there was with the Sherwood Rangers, and consequently they got slaughtered, which is why they're disbanded at the end of July. And then a whole squadron from, from the 24th Lancers then, rejo- then joins the Sherwood Rangers. But it's interesting because they're the third regiment in 8th Armour Brigade, but they're also the most experienced. Yes. I mean, and that really came home yesterday when we were discussing that moment where, you know, really, Sergeant and I really shouldn't be here when, when that Tiger tank turned and absolutely yeah. had, you know, the, well, I guess it would have been the Robin Hood. The Rue Massieu in Fontenay, yeah. And, and, the, and you yeah, know, so the Tiger is either trying to do another Michael Whitman at Villa Bocage, the same unit, the tanks from the same Whitman unit, or he's just got discombobulated and lost coming from Tessel direction. But anyway, he turns into the Rue Massieu at the, at the southern end, and at the far end is the farmyard, which is now the new regimental headquarters of the Sherwood Rangers. And Stanley is standing outside Robin Hood, the CO's tank, when this tiger turns at the far end. And I mean, you just, I mean talk about heart-stopping moments. I mean, you can say what you like about tiger tanks, but when you're up, when you're when you're facing off against them, they're pretty. You know, the fear factor is is definitely eleven out of ten. And just at that moment, John Semkin turns in from the northern end, and because of that experience, he's got one up the spout. He's got an armour-piercing round him. Says fire immediately and saves Stanley's life, (laughs) without doubt. I mean, you know, just just absolutely extraordinary. And he in his typical understated way you know references in his diary thankful very thankful John Semkin and, uh, and noted that it could have been a different outcome which was the way he described this and it was just it was remarkable so when did you really start to become aware of all of this well um, I remember going to a service um, which commemorated Daddy and General Gavin yes friend of the show I should yeah. say um, Sam General Slim Jim Gavin that was in the cathedral and that in was Nijmegen. in Nijmegen yeah. and of course that really was a big moment um, yeah. when the whole community there were recognising him and that really was I think the first yes they time. got on very well those two didn't they they got on very very well indeed um, so I think that was, well, it was very dramatic remember the two pictures on the altar yeah. of both of them 
and it was, <laughs> what of Gavin was, and, uh, and Stanley yeah. and they had a joint memorial service because they died to take that and it was I actually I slightly forgot about that it was really well, it was remarkable wasn't I mean it? that was I mean the gratitude we obviously yeah. saw it yesterday um, you know by the beaches with the French community but that really was um, an extraordinary ceremony and a day a day of thanks you know for liberation I mean so many people say to me oh god I just wish I'd spoke to my father more or my uncle more or grandfather or whatever I mean do, do you have regrets about that or, 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 or do you think it was right that you didn't press him during his life and, and that, that in a way what a, what a lovely way you can have an ongoing relationship with your father even though he's been gone 30 plus years you, you, can, you can continue that relationship by learning and understanding more about what he did in the war I do remember as quite a small child, actually, um, asking him, I probably was about seven or eight, whether he hated the Germans. <laughs> and um, he said, absolutely not, uh, which I think is, uh, you know, very interesting, isn't it? I mean, he said, you know, actually, they were, they were great soldiers, they were good people, and obviously there were an element that weren't. But he didn't carry... Bitterness. Or... Bitterness, yeah. which, is, um, which is lovely. I think James probably, just to answer what you said, I just, I think if he had wanted to talk about it, he would have done, but he was an innately such a modest man and understated that he, he wouldn't have felt it was right. But I'm absolutely convinced he would be delighted that the shared rangers have, you know, have, you know, their place in history now has been so cemented, you know. Frankly, now they've got their own street. There they've got their own street. <laughs> the Rue des Chaudes Rangers. And the wonderful support and work that you've given as well. And it wouldn't be from his perspective he'd be delighted. He'd be delighted, you know, for, you know, the achievements of the regiment and all the individuals within it. And I think he'd be absolutely thrilled. Um, then you think about that. I, I second that. And I, James, we're so grateful to you. Oh, because well, you no, shone I mean, a light. And they were an incredible group of men, and um, and everyone can get to know them. So we couldn't be more grateful. Well, you, no, no gratitude necessary. It's, it's been um, uh, it's been it's been such a, a privilege to to write about about him and them and all these different characters from Bill Walton to John Semkin to George Dring to Peter, the wonderful Peter Soleri and, yes. and and so on. I mean, you know, all such characters. And I think you know, from my point of view, it's one of the things that's always really appealed was that they are this bunch of eccentrics and misfits and. You know, they have their different quirks and stuff, all of which is sort of, um, you know, it's just so charming, really. You know, I, I mean, so Peter Soleri's long, long-winded orders, and you know, it's just really <laughs> funny. Um, I do see, perchance, what looks like possibly could be a tiger right? <laughs> <laughs> somewhere to starboard at. Yeah. You know, all this kind of stuff. Uh, very, I was very reading funny. only in that at the point one o three when when they were. Daddy was having a meeting, a meeting with Peter, and suddenly they were stomped, and they rushed to get into the tanks to get out of the way. <laughs> and he describes how he heard the scrabbling around by the back of the tank, and he thought it was a, a German about to drop a grenade. And so he comes up with his revolver in hand to find <laughs> Peter, who had gone back in the midst of this barrage to retrieve the whiskey bottle they'd both been sharing <laughs> while looking at the map. Yeah, yeah, and that's brilliant. It was early, and he just captures that so beautifully in his story. Yeah, really funny. Oh, well, I'm f- finishing this little homage trip to the Sherwood Rangers by visiting the new Normandy Memorial, overlooking Sword Beach, um, Gold Beach, rather. Um, 
it's it's, it's a sort of cloudy day sort of the sky is bruised but sort of curiously appropriate because it feels you know the wind is up it sort of feels curiously like kind of sort of d-day weather but i've got to say this new memorial i know it's caused some soul searching in certain areas and and some controversy and all the rest of it but it's absolutely stunning i mean it, it is breathtakingly stunning laid out as a map of the Union Jack, but just so beautifully done with these huge columns, rows upon rows of columns with everyone's name on, and here we are at the army, and I'm looking at Peter Pepler and Keith Douglas, and it has a name on one side of the square column, their rank and age on the other. So here's Pepler P, Lieutenant, age 24, and then on the other side... You've got Douglas KC, and on the other side, Captain, also age 24. And it's just so beautifully done. It really is a sort of monument of, of limestone. It's, it's sombre, reflective, fab- fabulous views overlooking, overlooking the beaches where 69 Brigade came ashore and the Green Howards. You know, literally 500 yards away was where Stanley Hollis did the first part of the action at Wanama VC um, because it's June there's reeves everywhere it's it's to us is given the honour of striking a blow for freedom which we will which will live in history and in the better days that lie ahead men will speak of pride with pride of our doings it's got the quote from King George VI on the D-Day broadcast and it's honestly it's just beautifully done a a stunning statue bronze statue of three tommies coming ashore one with a bren gun one pointing a rifle the other clutching a sten gun more poppies at its at its at its feet and i have to say i'm really glad i've been here and it's been wonderful to spend a few days poring over some of the sherwood rangers ground to be able to talk at length to David Christofferson and Sarah Jane Grace about their father Stanley to visit point 103 again and and really work out with this addition of all these photographs exactly where it was that Keith Douglas and Peter Pepler died and also to see the point where a squadron came ashore and where Stanley would have come ashore on the morning of the 6th of June 1944 it's I suppose it hasn't really made any difference to the book that I wrote, but it certainly enhanced my understanding. And to end up here on this beautiful, beautiful spot, overlooking the remains of the Mulberry Harbour and overlooking Gold Beach, the sea looking extremely peaceful, it has to be said, out of the channel, has been really moving. And um, it's been a privilege, to be perfectly honest. Anyway, cheerio from me and uh, next time join you back with Al for more episodes of We Have Ways of Making You Talk cheerio for now <laughs>